right, here we go. Hey, um, hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 100, 171. Man, we're getting close to 200. Welcome to episode 171 of the John Riley Project. It is Friday, October 2nd. It's 2 o'clock. We're doing the live stream as we always do. Um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two. So thanks a ton for joining us. And boy, we've got some good things in store for you. We're going to we're going to go over the um, the voter pamphlet, you know, the voter pamphlet that we get in the mail. And I'm not going to get hung up on the political candidates, um, but I am going to go through the propositions. And this was actually recommended to me um, by one of our viewers, um, one of our listeners to the podcast. They thought that'd be a good idea to go through the propositions. And I know there's some of these that I knew exactly how I was going to vote. And there are others that I didn't really know yet. So I did some of my own homework because I had to do the homework anyways. And so I just thought I'd share with you my thoughts on every one of the propositions for the state of California and for also for Measure P here in the city of Poway. I'll be kind of breaking that down uh, from my own perspective and basically let you know my reasoning, my rationale and how I'll be filling out my ballot. Um, but yeah, this is a live stream, you know, and so that means your questions, your comments are always invited. So please, if you uh, want to participate in the conversation, type into the comment section on Facebook or YouTube and let me know your thoughts. I'll read them on the air and we'll have some fun. We'll have a little dialogue going here on a Friday afternoon. Um, before we jump in and really get into the propositions, uh, Man, the news broke last last night late that President Trump and the First Lady have both been um, uh, diagnosed with the COVID-19 virus. And I think a lot of us were like blown away by that. Um, you know, there's been all kinds of reaction to this in the last 12 hours. I mean, there are some people that um, are really mean spirited and, you know, saying all kinds of awful things about Trump, you know, hoping he suffers and you know on and on down that list. I'm not going to go there. I mean, I'm no fan of Trump. Um, I'm definitely not a fan of his, him personally or his policies, but I don't wish ill will on anybody. Um, but there is a certain karma to this, I would say, because he has been in either such denial to it or or really not embracing a lot of the safety measures. And then it seems he's the one that gets infected with this. But there's been all kinds of also sort of conspiracy theories like, is it true? Is it not? Is this a way to avoid the debates? You know, yada, yada. Who knows how this is going to go? But, you know, I was talking with one of our longtime viewers, Pete Neal, and we were wondering, is this going to create a constitutional crisis? I mean, imagine if um, Trump becomes seriously ill and can't take to continue on with the presidency. But, you know, he's on the ballot. So what if he's elected? You know, then does it automatically go to his vice presidential candidate or do the delegates get to choose someone else? I mean, there's a lot of interesting constitutional scenarios as this plays out. So I think we're going to learn a lot about our process. Uh, but, you know, hopefully there's a speedy recovery for the president. He uh, gets back on the campaign trail and we have as much normalcy in this election as possible. I mean, even 
prior to him being diagnosed with COVID, it was already going to be a highly irregular election. So hopefully it kind of stabilizes. Um, the other big news, of course, are the San Diego Padres. Oh, my God. So what a game last night. They won um, and they're still alive. They're going into a do or die game three today at four o'clock. We weren't sure who was going to get the start. It's going to be Craig Stammen. So I can't wait for that. That's why I skipped the two o'clock podcast on Wednesday. Uh, but I was really happy I can do the two o'clock with you today. The ball game's at four. So all good. So I uh, hope everyone can have some um you know, some good vibes, good energy for the San Diego Padres. Um, I've been waiting 14 years for this playoff series. So I'm really, I'm really hoping they're going to do well tonight. So, okay. So let's, um, let's get into the propositions. And like I said, you know, if you got your voter pamphlet and there's a number of them that have been mailed, um, this is the, the presidential general election voter guide. And it gives you a pretty much like what the ballot is going to look like. Um, So like I said, we're going to go through the state level propositions. I'm going to make my comments known on every one of them. I'll let you know how I'm going to vote. And I'm also going to offer commentary on Measure P here in Poway, which is uh, for the farm. And I'm going to save that one till the end. Um, But I think it's interesting to talk about the the process in general. You know, I I've always had mixed feelings about the whole idea of statewide propositions in California, because, you know, on one hand, when they were first, you know, being discussed and I was younger and getting involved with voting, I thought, man, these are great. You know, we don't have to depend on those turkeys in Sacramento. We can vote whoever for however we want. We can have a direct vote, a direct democracy. That sounds great. But then if you think about it, if you look at these propositions, um, it's it's anything but like a I'll, I'll put it quote unquote pure democracy because there are such massive special interests that are involved in every one of these propositions. Most of them have major corporate or unions or uh, government you know uh, uh, you know groups that are greatly supporting these because one way or another this typically puts money in certain people's pockets. Every one of these or most every one of them. So you kind of realize that this is just a way that maybe for for those that are lobbyists, those that want to have great influence in the system that have been unsuccessful doing it in Sacramento. Now they're going to take it to the people. And then we get all these ads that come from them. And these ads for these propositions are the most distorted, irrational ads of all time. You know, they they make it purely about emotion. And if you vote yes or no, you know, the bad people are want children to die and grandma to be thrown off a cliff and they want houses to burn down and you need to vote for it or all these terrible things are going to happen. But in the ads themselves, they never really tell you exactly what the proposition is about. So there's all kinds of just uh, propaganda and nonsense around it. So I was then I got as I got older, I became more aware of this. And then remember in 2008, there was Prop 8 in California. And this was the proposition that um, would have made gay marriage illegal. And it was a constitutional amendment. And it passed in the state of California, which today is overwhelmingly blue. But even in 2008, this was a solid blue state. And you're like, wait a minute. Okay, this is too far. I mean, we can't we can't have the people voting to oppress a minority. This is when democracy is like, you know, mob rule, like like uh, two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. So when that happened, I became very, very, you know, down on the whole idea of these state propositions 
Um, now, fortunately, Prop 8 was overturned in the courts. That, but really, it sh- if it was not constitutional in the first place, it really shouldn't have gone on the ballot to begin with. Um, but, you know, since Prop 8, I've always been really kind of suspicious and more down on a lot of these propositions. But then I realized in some cases, you know, it, it may be the last resort for people to do good. And, you know, Connor Boyack talked a lot about that. Uh, Connor um, and his family, the Boyack family, used to live here in Poway. They've, they've since moved to um, Utah. And Connor runs a, his own sort of um, think tank, and it's the Libertas Institute. And he was really pushing to help get re- not recreational, but um, uh, medical marijuana passed in Utah. And he tried like hell to get it done, you know, through the normal process. And and he's not a fan of the proposition process either. But finally, that was his only resort. And he went to that and led a drive. And fortunately, medical marijuana was approved in Utah. I mean, because there are people that have epilepsy and people, you know, that are suffering from uh, PTSD, then, you know, that's a legitimate like health issue. It's a legitimate medicine. And, you know, he was able to help get the state and get the voters to, you know, educated them and got them over this whole issue of the voodoo around marijuana. So, um, yeah, so sometimes it is sort of a last resort. Um, so anyways, um, you know, as I was going through this, it was kind of funny. You go on Ballotpedia and there were a bunch of propositions that were being considered that were in various stages of approval, but never got on the ballot. And there were some really interesting ones. There was one that is to have California secede from the United States. That's an interesting idea. I think that's one that, you know, I think people from both political parties might see some benefit in that. Um, But that one never got enough traction. There was also another one to put ranked choice voting in California, which is something I wholeheartedly endorse. You know, that's the one where you can stack rank the candidates in order one, two, three, four. um, So you can really vote for who you want to vote for rather than feeling like you've got to vote for the lesser of evils. Um, Ranked choice voting, it, it increases voter participation. It's, you know, arguably a much more uh, democratic process. So uh, that one also didn't make the ballot. But ranked choice voting is approved in a lot of cities and counties, not just in California, but around the United States. And I like how it's getting more and more traction. But there's all kinds of other ones on the potential list. But let's go through the actual list. And um, here's my pamphlet. I'm going to bring it in. I, it shows where I'm supposed to vote here. They keep changing the, the um, polling location for me. I like going into the polls. It's not because I'm paranoid about my vote not being counted. It's not because I don't want to use the mail. You know, it's just that I kind of like going. It's it's you know, I I view this whole voting process as like an expression of my own values. Um, It's like free speech to me. I get to actually say what I believe in and make it count. Um, I don't expect that it's going to you know, my one vote is going to tip the scale and and change California from a blue state to a red state. I have no such illusion, but I still I don't know. I enjoy the participatory effect of this, even though I know my vote has little impact. But it is important to me, to me, to have it as um, my own self-expression. And to me, that's extraordinarily valuable based on my own my own judgment. So. Okay, so let's go through this. And 
there are, and yeah, they didn't number these things. It's from number 14 through 25. So I guess we're going to go be going through all, is it 11 or 12 of these? So, um, the first one is Prop 14 is the authorization of bonds to continue stem cell research. And it's like $5.5 billion in bonds. And this is always an interesting topic because stem cell research, you know, is a what used to be a really hot topic with um, the religious right, because a lot of times stem cells, you know, stem cells are these special kinds of cells that have the ability um, for scientists to come up with new cures and new medical techniques, maybe even some new medicines. Um, And then the embryonic stem cells were the ones that had the most power and the most ability to do good. Um, But um, you know, of course, the religious right didn't want embryonic stem cells to be used and, and then it turned into an abortion battle. And so when you see, see stem cell research, sometimes immediately it goes to this right wing versus left wing, this religion versus versus secular. And and but I see this and I like I'm all for stem cell research. I think that's incredibly important. It's about science and progress. And and we've got to embrace it. You know, this is how we're going to have longer um, lives, you know, uh, longer longevity. It's an important thing to have stem cell research. The question, though, is, is should the state government fund it? I mean, it's five point five billion dollars. I mean, it's going to cost two hundred and sixty million dollars every year for 30 years to fund this. So. You know, I, as a general rule, when I go into the ballot box, if there's ever a bond, I vote no. If it's ever a tax increase, I vote no. Um, And it's because I don't want to place additional burdens on the people of California. I mean, we're already the highest tax state in the nation. We already have, you know, tremendous budget difficulties. You know, we're talking about trying to have um, enough money to pay for education. But then, you know, what's our priority? You know, stem cell research sounds good. But is it something that we we believe that the state should fund? Is this something that all taxpayers should fund when already it's getting a tremendous amount of private donations? I mean, frankly, corporate R&D should be funding this uh, because it's going to be turned into products and services that are going to be monetized in a capitalist society that we're going to be benefits to those companies. So I think in a lot of ways, stem cell research is something that's important absolutely critical, but I question whether or not it should be publicly funded. So I'm going to be voting no on on Prop 14. And now Prop 15 is is the one that I I talked about this in the last podcast. I have a definite, definite no on Prop 15. And so what this is, is it increases. Okay, this is note how they do this. They will the, the title of it is very different than the mechanics of how it works. So Prop 15 is titled Increases Funding Sources for Public Schools, Community Colleges, and Local Government Services by Changing Tax Assessment of Commercial and Industrial Property Initiative, a Constitutional Amendment. So, you know, it's like people are always going to want to vote to help schools, right? And they're always going to want to help out community colleges and local government. And everyone wants to do the right thing, right? We all want to make our schools better. But it, it this comes at a very big price. And what what this is, is that, you know, it's it's a... Um, a it's, it's an erosion of Prop 13 is what this comes down to. Of course, Prop 13 was the property tax initiative in the late 70s. It was passed that, um, you know, prevented 
property taxes from rising at dramatically aggressive rates because real estate prices in California have been rising so fast that property taxes have been rising so fast. And it got to the point where there are some old people that were living in houses where the property taxes became so onerous they couldn't afford to stay in the house. Um, and and it was also part of a kind of a having one category of taxes that was actually sort of contained, sort of limited. Uh, so Prop 13 has been something that I have been very much in support. Well, what this does is it says they're going to leave the residential portion of Prop 13 alone, so they say. And for Prop for industrial properties, commercial properties, essentially for businesses, um, those properties are going to have to be um, taxed at their actual market value, not the assessed value. Because remember in Prop 13, they keep the assessed value based on the purchase price with approximately a, I don't know if I remember, it's like a one or a 2% increase every year. So, um, but since property in California has gotten very expensive and has increased far greater than one or 2% a year, the assessed value of residential property can often be a lot less than the actual market value. And that's what keeps the property taxes in check. They want to remove this for commercial properties. And the whole idea is, is that we want more money. We need more money for our schools and for our colleges and to help people. But we're going to do it. We're going to be clever here. We're not going to go after homeowners. We're going to tax those evil, rich corporate people that have these industrial and commercial buildings. And we're going to tax them instead. Okay. Now it's, this is, you see this in a lot of motivation with tax increases because they usually are only on the wealthy or only on corporations. But I don't know about you, but I own a small business. I've leased commercial property. And so when I negotiate a lease with my client, there is an, uh, you, you figure out whatever the, the dollar per square foot is. And a lot of that's dependent on the type of, of commercial property is, whether it's class A office space or it's retail or it's, you know, semi-industrial, um, you know, older buildings are going to have a lower cost per square foot on the lease. Um, usually that cost per square foot is reasonably market driven. Um, it becomes negotiable the longer you you agree or commit to in, in a in a lease. Most leases are five years, um, but often the you know the property owner wants a lot more, and they'll usually have a little give and take with that lease rate. But in addition to the lease rate, there's always this thing called triple net, and triple net is an industry standard deal where um, it, it covers three things. It's it's um, that are in addition to the lease rate, the dollar per square foot rate. And it's for insurance. It's for maintenance of the of the common ground and the property around the buildings and for taxes. So basically, the way triple net works is, is that the property owner doesn't pay the tax. The property owner instead passes it through to the, the lessee of the space, or the lessor, I can't get those terms mixed up. And then the um, the less the the person leasing or the company leasing bears the proportional burden of the uh, property tax. So it's just going to be passed through. So it's going to end up costing small businesses, small mom and pop businesses more. Their leases are going to be going up, and you know. 
to me, that's it's going to have a trickle down effect throughout the economy. It's going to then you know, put them in a tough spot. They're going to have to be asking questions about whether or not they need to raise rates. And meanwhile, we're all going through covid and a lot of these businesses have either been shut down, uh, but they still got to pay their lease or they got one arm tied behind their back where they can't actually make um, they can't actually make uh uh, you know, take advantage of the full amount of their property because they're not allowed to, like if you're a restaurant, you can't have seating inside, you can only have seating outside. And so they're, they're kind of operating with, without full capacity. So this is going to really be damaging to those businesses as well. And, you know, it, it, it ultimately, I'm of the opinion that if not only if this pass, would it create more costs that are passed down to the little guy and ultimately to consumers like you or I. But it would also very much um, uh, be an attack on Prop 13. And then what's next? If Prop 15 passes, the commercial portion of Prop 13 is eliminated. Well, the next logical thing they're going to do is they're going to come after the residential uh, properties and work to increase taxes there because the government and their employees and the employee unions have an insatiable appetite for more and more and more revenue. Uh, so it can ultimately go in their pockets. They want to take money out of your pocket and put it into their pockets. So I'm a huge, huge no on Prop 15 because we got to have some control here. So um, Pete Neal chimed in on the podcast here on the live stream, and he said they're going to take Trump to Walter Reed. Interesting. Um, you know, he went to Walter Reed Gosh, was it at the beginning of the of the calendar year? And that's when some people were suspecting he had health issues, maybe had a mini stroke um, or a series of mini strokes. But it's good that he's going to Walter Reed, because if he does have covid, I mean, he should be thoroughly diagnosed. I mean, he is the president of the United States, after all. So I'm very curious to see how that one shakes out. So we'll, we'll find out. Um, but, you know. I said it with Prop 14 as well. I always vote no on bonds because a bond is just a loan. A bond is a loan that ultimately has to be paid for either by a direct tax to property owners. A lot of times that's like a lot of the school bonds are done that way. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, Or it has to be taken out of the general fund, which then puts pressure on the overall budget, which then leads to more and more um, requests for tax increases. So I'm just generally, as a rule, no on bonds. And no on tax increases. And so um, that's what I'm doing here for Prop 15. Now, I will say this. And um, when it comes to taxes, California is freaking expensive as hell on taxes. I mean, it's an expensive state to live here, not just for the price of property. The cost of living is so high, but the tax rates here are enormous and they keep going up. And so this is just like one category that maybe sort of we can kind of keep it contained, you know, so not every category is going out of control. But I want to give you a sense of this. And this is what influences the way that I think about it is that there is a guy that he's out here in San Diego, actually lives in Scripps Ranch, and his name is Richard Ryder. And this guy is extraordinarily outspoken against tax increases, um, very outspoken about um, some of the downsides of California. And he produces this 
it's a very common post that he shared and it's about California versus the other states. And there's a lot of interesting stats here, but I want to read a few highlights to you to give you a sense of how California compares to the other states when it comes to taxes. California has by far the nation's highest state income tax. So, you know, it starts at 10.3% and then it goes up as high as 13.3% for the millionaires. So most states have state income taxes that are single digit. And if they are progressive, you know, they they don't kick in and start going after little guys as quickly as these do. So, um, even for people like our 9.3 tax bracket started at under $50,000 for people filing as individuals. So even for the middle class and in some cases, the lower middle class, they're getting punched in the nose with state income taxes of about 10 percent. Um, and and it keeps going up from there. And, and then that doesn't even count like the capital gains taxes, which are like the second highest in the world here in the state of California. When you add the because they because California cap. Uh, taxes capital gains at the same rate as the um, as the state income tax, so it becomes extremely expensive. And capital gains taxes are things that we all have to deal with, whether we're buying and selling stocks or we're buying and selling real estate. And in California, a lot of times, you know, people are are feeling the effects of capital gains taxes on real estate. Now, granted, I know the first half million dollars is not taxable, but still, um, this plays a big role, especially when you're in communities in California where people have multi-million dollar homes. So, um, you know, California has the highest state sales tax in the nation, too. So if you think of the sales tax, you know, I think what is it in here in San Diego? Is it seven and three quarters percent? I think that's what it is. But that's really made up of multiple layers. There's a state level and then there is a county level. And then in some cases, some cities have a city level, a city layer to make up the overall sales tax. And that's why if you're here, even in San Diego County, the sales tax can vary depending on the city you're in. And if you're buying a, something like a car, that can make a big difference. Um, you know, and even a half of 1%. I mean, that's hundreds of dollars. So um, in, in uh, the, the state layer of it, California is the highest in the nation. And we can go down the list in terms of, um, you know, at the gas pump, we're paying 79.6 cents a gallon in, in a gas tax, which is the nation's highest. And you add on top of that another 10 to 12 uh, cents per gallon for um, for cap and trade. And, you know, we can debate the, the, you know, the benefits of the gas tax, the benefits of cap and trade. But the fact is that our gas taxes are enormous here in California. That's part of the reason, one of the many reasons that I have an electric car. In fact, we have two electric cars. We take advantage of all the incentives because um, we want to play the game to win. But imagine if you're a, um, a construction worker, a laborer, and you got a truck and you're driving to job sites and you can't afford the price of real estate in the city. So like if you are in the Bay Area, you can't afford to live in the Bay Area. So you live out in Manteca or Tracy or far away and you got to drive your Ford F-150 with terrible gas mileage just to get to the job sites so you can do construction and you're not making a lot of money to begin with. And then you've got to pay like roughly 80 cents a gallon on that gas. It can be 
a lot of a burden. Uh, Kevin Kennedy uh, chiming in on the podcast, bobbing my head in agreement. Yeah, just like a like a Will Myers bobblehead doll. So um, yeah, right on. So um, yeah, it, it, it's extremely expensive to live here. And California, even the property taxes, people will say, well, you know, the property tax rate in California is really not that high. You compare it to these other states, the rate, you know, here, what is it, like 1%, you know, it, in other states, it's way higher when you um, look at the rate. But if you look at the tax bill, the, the actual check we write to the county tax assessor, it's enormous because the property values are so high here. And so the median California Homer property tax bill, not the rate, but the bill is 53.6% higher than the average of the other 49 states. Okay, and and then the impact fees to build housing. We're we're going to get into a little bit of this when we talk about the farm in Poway. But if you want to build new homes in California, there are impact fees um, that can range anywhere from six to eighteen percent for each home. Um, so that's like between thirty two and ninety eight thousand dollars per unit for the impact fees. I mean, it's no wonder that the price of housing is so expensive. It's no wonder that a lot of the builders um, are often building, you know, high end homes, because when you add these kinds of impact fees on more uh, middle class or lower middle class housing developments, it makes that price of housing enormous. So, again, and then there's a uh, an anti small business corporate tax like I'm, I'm a, I own an S corporation. I have to pay an eight hundred dollar tax every year no matter how much profit I earn. In fact, if I lost money, I still have to pay the $800 S corporation tax. And that's on top of any of my additional taxes that I pay as part of my business, including any income taxes that are taxable and passed on to me as an individual. So, I mean, I, I mean, I would just go down the list and I've got all these here. They're all highlighted. But if you look up, you know, Richard Ryder, uh, California versus the other states. Um, and he's got multiple versions of this that have been updated at different times. And there's a there's a version that's on his, I think it's his blogger account, um, blogger.com account that he updates. And that's his master update. Check that out. So when I am looking at Prop 15, and I see this as an increase of taxes on commercial property. I see this as a threat to the original Prop 13 from the late 70s. I'm thinking, Okay, income tax, sales tax, gas tax, corporate taxes. I mean, everything in California is so damn expensive. Can we at least have one category that we can sort of maybe kind of control? And we're already paying a ton when we actually write the check for property taxes. And if they increase the this with Prop, Prop 15, they increase the commercial taxes uh, for that property, it just passes through. Triple net passes through to the company, the small business that's leasing that office suite or leasing that building. It just passed through and it's an expense on that small business, which they in turn have to either absorb or they're going to have to charge customers more or they're not going to be able to pay their employees as much. You know, when people think, well, we'll just tax corporations, but corporations don't pay taxes. People pay taxes. Whether you're the property owner, the commercial, um, the, the the corporate owner, you know, your shareholder, you're going to pay the tax um, or the company is going to just basically pass it through. I mean, in fact, where do companies get the money to pay the taxes? 
They get it from customers who are paying the money. So in the end, people pay taxes. So when you're when you're trying to like increase the property tax here for commercial properties, that's a huge no. Okay, I'm uh, rambling here. Uh, Kevin Kennedy says, don't forget all the fees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the impact fees. We talked about that. Um, but yeah, there are enormous fees um, throughout the state of California. You know, everywhere you turn, like you know, building permit fees, and you know, they're they're, they're endless. So um, at least let's have one category we can kind of control. Okay. Prop 16 um, allows diversity as a factor in public employment, education and contracting decisions, legislative constitutional amendments. So this is a reversal of a previous proposition. And what was it like? Was it Prop 209, I think, is what it was about 10 years ago. And that what they basically said is that the state government cannot cannot discriminate based on race or age or any of these um, physical characteristics of people. And to me, that made sense because I'm all about, you know, we should have equal rights. We should be judged equally under the law. You know, it's part of, I talk about this podcast is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But in the Declaration of Independence, in the preamble, it talks about all men are created equal. Now, it doesn't just mean men like males. It means all humans, are created equal. So we should all be equal under the law. So when they abolished, um, you know, any sort of racial or gender or national origin um, types of uh, discrimination, I was like, right on. And I understand why they do it. They're trying to resolve um, inequities from the past. They're trying to make up for the sins of the past. They're trying to, you know, achieve some kind of equity. But if we if we really want to you know follow through on you know judgment of the individual, then we have to have rights that apply equally to all individuals, and it has some interesting consequences because you know usually you think well this is going to give people of color an advantage because the white people have been uh, in, in power and in control for so long, but when you start doing this, it actually negatively impacts Asian people. It makes it harder for Asian people to get into universities. They're discriminated against in many cases. So to me, we need to get beyond all this. We need. And besides, you know what? As we're moving along through society, there's interracial marriages and mixed uh, race children. And a lot of this is starting to break down anyways. Um, You know, when you get in a mixed race, you know, what category are you in? If you're one third this and, you know, three fourths that. I mean, how do you figure that out? So we just need to get to the point of just saying, look, let's just treat everyone equally under the law. That's the right way to do it. We don't need to discriminate negatively against any group. We don't need to discriminate against blacks, but we don't also need to, you know, change the rules. So certain ethnic groups get certain advantages. It should just be level. We should be equal under the law. So Prop 16, um, I'm a big no. Um, Prop 17 is interesting. Prop 17 restores the right to vote after completion of a prison term. So I think this is for people that, yeah, they've gone to prison. And in some states, by the way, if you are have gone to prison, you're considered a felon, even though you've been let out. Some states, you don't ever get the right to vote at all. In California, I think I think what this does is that it it just lets. OK, I, I think I got this right. But I think if you are under parole you still don't have the right to vote. But once you clear that, you do have the right. Like, I'm of the opinion we all should have the right to vote. I mean, 
I understand when people are in jail, um, you know, some people say they shouldn't have the right to vote, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either. I mean, but but at minimum, if you're out of jail, if you're out, you should have the same rights and and the same liberties as anyone else. But there's all these conditions, you know, this guy can't vote, this person can't vote, this person has limited rights when they get out of prison. I think we need to have equality under the law. And so here, this is a case of restoring people's ability to vote um, after they complete their prison term. To me, that's an easy yes. Um, Prop 18 amends the California Constitution to permit 17-year-olds to vote in primary and special elections if they will turn 18 by the next general election and be otherwise eligible to vote. So this is a good one, too. And now for me, this is a yes as well. So um, this is a case of, let's say your your birthday is in October. You turn 18 in October so you can vote in the general election in November. But back when we did the primary in March, should that same person when they were 17 be able to vote? I'm of the opinion the answer is absolutely yes, because I, we, you know, we always talk about um, taxation without representation, right? Well, there's a lot of 16 and 17 year olds that are paying taxes. They're paying the gas tax when they fill up their car. Many of them are working. They're paying um, state income tax, federal income tax. And even if they don't earn enough money to pay the tax, they still got to pay for you know, payroll taxes. Um, you know, they still pay sales taxes. So I don't see any reason why we shouldn't allow this. I mean, I'm frankly of the opinion that voting age should be lowered to 16. That's what I would do. Now, of course, a lot of people don't like this idea because they don't want to allow young people to vote because they're afraid of how they're going to vote. <laughs> I mean, because I think a lot of us, when we were really young, we're very idealistic. Um, we're definitely not very mature. We definitely have varying levels of education. Um, but I think that you know, encouraging young people to become educated and giving them expanded rights to vote is a good thing because they have a stake in the game too, right? They do. And a lot of them are paying taxes already. So uh, to me, I would definitely vote yes on this. Um, I know that's something that's going to probably play into the hands of my friends on the left. I mean, frankly, when I was that age, I I would probably have considered myself liberal. When I originally registered to vote, I was a Democrat. And I switched out of that in, um, when was it? Probably right after the 88 election. I voted for Mondale and Dukakis. Can you believe that? And then after that, um, I've um, not been a Republican or a Democrat ever since. Um, I've either been a third party or independent. Um, So uh, yeah, letting younger people vote, they're probably, especially in California, that would probably help the Democrats. But the principle is, is that they have a stake in the game they should have a right to vote. And otherwise, it's taxation without representation. So I'm going to be a yes on Prop 7, on Prop 18. Pardon me. I'm a, a yes on 17 and a yes on 18. Okay, 19. This was a really crazy one. So um, Prop 19 is changes certain property tax rules. And it's complicated. I mean, you get into it, it's like if you're age 55 and over and you can move. And then if your next house is more expensive, you can retain your old property tax levels. And otherwise, there's all these additional cases. Um, The money is going to be used um, to fund wildfire and disaster victims. So there's the emotional sympathy vote because we all want to help the firefighters. We all want to resolve these fires. It's going to provide more money for that. But it's just, it, it comes off it really complex. It's all 
you know, it's all this central planning by people in Sacramento pushing buttons and deciding who's going to pay more and who's going to pay less and which groups are going to be rewarded at the expense of which other groups. And I, I, I went through it. I'm thinking, okay, part of that makes sense. Part of that doesn't make sense. But then you kind of go down and you see, well, who supports it and who doesn't. That usually is the key. And sure enough, a lot of unions support it because a lot of these are government employee unions. So it's going to be more money for them, which means less money for for you know private citizens. And the Howard Jarvis um, organization opposes it. And, you know, Howard Jarvis was the big group behind the whole well, Howard Jarvis is a guy. What was it, it was Jarvis Gann, I think, was that Prop 13? But at any rate, um, Jarvis opposed it uh, because it was an increase in taxes. Um, so I'm going to vote no on it as well, partly because it's complicated, partly because it's more pushing levers and buttons and and distorting the tax code. But then also partly because Howard Jarvis opposes it. So I'll oppose it, too. Um, Prop 20 is an interesting one. Um, restricts parole for certain offenses currently considered to be nonviolent. Authorizes felony sentences for certain offenses currently treated as only a misdemeanor. So you kind of get into this one. And a lot of this is sort of the tough on crime stuff, right? Where these people, you know, they want to put more people in prison. They want to be more aggressive with certain cases. And, and yeah, are there certain situations where maybe crimes that are classified as misdemeanors, should they be felony? I mean, we can get into the weeds in this, but in the, in the end, this just seemed like more of massive um, push for more people in prison when I think we should be going the other direction. Uh, California's prison system is huge, and it's not just because it's private prisons. I mean, there's tons of public prisons here in the state of California, and they all want more people in the prisons because it's more money into the prison industrial complex. I remember back, like, gosh, it was about eight or 10 years ago, there was one of these propositions, and it was about whether or not to treat uh, people that were busted for marijuana use um, as a criminal matter or as a health matter. And usually you think, okay, well, yeah, the private prisons, they want to make it a criminal matter. So more people go in private prisons and more money in these evil corporate private pockets. But you know what? So did the government prison workers as expressed through the prison worker unions of government employees they wanted to keep marijuana as a um as a as a criminal issue they wanted to throw more people in prison because it benefits them at the expense of other people so I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big believer in civil liberties. I mean, obviously, there's people that need to go to prison for violent felonies. Um, but this struck me as more aggressiveness um, where it's questionable if we need to be more aggressive. Um, I think we need to have more more leniency in a lot of these cases and a definitely more discretion for judges to make those decisions. Um, but in a lot of cases, uh, you know, we talked with Pete Murray about this numerous times. A lot of these laws kind of tie the hands of these judges where they can't use judgment. So uh, Prop 20, I'll be voting no. Um, Moving on down the line. And by the way, I encourage your, your thoughts and comments. If you, say, if you hear me saying things here that you, you think I'm totally wrong, let me know and let's talk about it. If you think I'm right, you know, Kevin Kennedy said he was bobbing his head in agreement. I don't know if you're still bobbing your head in agreement. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but let me know. I'd be interested in your opinions. Okay, so we've we got five more here. So uh, Prop 21 expands local government's authority to enact rent control on residential properties. Okay, here we go. So 
rent control is obviously we've got a housing crisis, right? Um, we've got a ton of people that live in California, lots of people that want to move to California because there's a lot of economic opportunity. It's a beautiful state to live in. Um, it's the quality of life is generally pretty good, right? Now, there's a lot of people that are saying they've had it with California and they're getting out as an aside. And by the way, one of our good friends here in Poway that we just heard the news today that they're moving out, they're moving to Florida. So, yeah, there's a lot of people getting out of California because it's so damn expensive. And there's a, some people are getting out of California because they don't like the politics. Some people are getting out of California uh, for any number of reasons. Um, but. This is an interesting one. You talk about housing. It's so expensive. And that's why some people leave California because it's so hard to buy a house. It's so expensive to rent. But what rent control does is that it prevents a property owner from increasing their rent too much. And so on one level, you think that says, well, that sounds good. You know, we want to protect the the small guy. We don't want their rent going up so much. You know, those evil landlords. And we want to kind of keep that rent low so the small guys aren't getting hurt. But what ends up happening is, is that certain properties are under rent control and other properties aren't. So it ends up distorting the, the marketplace. It distorts the economy. So when you when it's like squeezing a balloon, you know, like those you go to a restaurant and those guys that make those balloons like in, a, in the shape of a horse or a dog and you squeeze on one end. Well, it inflates it on the other. So if you're limiting rent in some properties, OK, then that creates greater demand for all the other properties because the people in rent control generally never leave or rarely leave because they got a sweet deal. So and especially in California, when they're not building much more supply because there's limits on growth in California for any variety of reasons. And we'll talk about that with Measure P and Poway with the farm. When there's limits on growth of more housing units, you still have a limited supply, but you still have all this overwhelming demand and they can't get into the rent control. So the limited demand just encourages the non-rent control people to keep raising the price. And so it distorts the economy. And then on top of it, the property um, where they do have rent control, where they have the landlord has limited ability to raise the rent, then those properties tend to go downhill in terms of quality. The maintenance is not going to be done as as well. And so, again, further distortions. What they really need to do is just build more housing. You know, it's supply and demand. It's Econ 101. If they build more housing, then that demand can be satisfied and then prices will relax not just for purchases, but also for rentals. So, um, you know, rent control is something that most economists will, if you do research on it, they'll tell you it doesn't work. And you'll hear that not just from the right wing Republican people, but for a lot of cases, a lot of left wing Democratic people, you know, they, they know emotionally they want to support low rent for people that have a need for it. But when you really look at it objectively, look at it from an economist point of view, Rent control often does more harm than good. Rent control can be very damaging um, to the overall housing market. And and in many cases, makes it harder for people that aren't in rent control, you know, because there's rarely ever any availability in rent control places. Then it makes it harder for them to find other kinds of housing. Uh, It makes housing more expensive, which goes and defeats the whole idea of what rent control is supposed to be about. So I'm a big no on Prop 21. Um, 
Moving on down the list, and thanks everyone for sticking with me. We're at 45 minutes. We're almost done. Prop 22. Oh, this is a good one too. Um, Prop 22 exempts app-based transportation and delivery companies from providing employee benefits to certain drivers. So this is the Uber, the Lyft, the DoorDash. This is when the, the state government said you can't allow them to be private contractors. They must be employees. And then if they are employees, then they get all kinds of you know employee benefits, employee rights and protections. Um, but then the employer, it's going to cost them more for those employees. I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in the idea of independent contracting, of gig working. In fact, that's a big part of how I make my money. Um, I do a lot of consulting work. Um, I do contract work for clients, some on a project basis, some on an hourly basis. Um, I love it. I have huge control over my um, my my work life balance. It's what allows me to do this podcast on a two in the afternoon, um, Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. I have control over my work life balance. I work when I want to work. And the more I work, the more I earn um, because I'm an independent contractor. In many cases, I make a far greater hourly wage than a lot of employees. But that's because the employer isn't paying for a lot of my benefits. The employer also could fire me at any time, um, you know, and not have to go through a lot of the rigorous HR laws in California. The, in my opinion, the independent contractor situation is a win-win. It's good for the employee, and it, well, it's not really an employee; it's an independent contractor. But it's also good for the employer. I mean, a lot of these drivers for Uber and Lyft. How many of them were complaining? I mean, some were, but a lot of those that were complaining were the ones that were co-opted by a lot of these employee unions that want to have them as dues paying union workers. Um, a lot of these um, people that are driving Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, they're students. They're people that are looking for a side hustle. Very few of them are doing it as a full-time gig. I mean, some are, but for the most part, they're doing a lot of that work as a side hustle. And that's actually works out really well because imagine having multiple streams of income. And when the economy shifts, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. You can maneuver, manipulate. You can decide to work a little more, work a little less, depending on your situation. Uh, and I don't think this is the arrangement between a company and an independent contractor is between that company and that independent contractor. The state of California should get their nose out of it. So um, I'm a huge yes on Prop 22. Um, and this is, you know, the, all the money is coming from Uber and Lyft and DoorDash. They're spending giant money because they're trying to spend money just to get their darn rights back so that they can you know, establish, you know, run their business the way they want to run their business. Um, and, you know, there have been companies, it's interesting is um, there's a, a publication called, I think it's, is it, was it Vox, um, which is a left-wing online publication. They use a lot of uh, contract labor as well. A lot of freelance writers write for that publication. And then when California put that law into place, they had to fire a lot of them. Because they didn't want to make them employees, they couldn't take on the burden of making them employees, so they fired them. And think about all the Uber and Lyft drivers. They were basically let go. I mean, some of them are retained, but um, yeah, so this ends up damaging not only you know, those contract workers, not only those businesses, but then we have less people available to do, you know, uh, to drive us places, to deliver food. We have less opportunity for that. Um, so in my opinion, this is an easy yes on Prop 22. 
Um, moving on down the line, uh, Prop 23 establishes requirements for kidney dialysis clinics, requires on-site medical professional. We, we keep getting these kidney dialysis propositions. We had one in the last cycle in 2018. It makes me wonder what the hell's going on in that industry. I did a little research on it. Basically, what it, this one this one is about making sure there's a doctor on site at that um, dialysis clinic. Well, we should be looking for ways to make healthcare less expensive, right? It's already crazy expensive. These people already have a doctor that manages their um, uh, their treatment. You know, that prescribes a. Um, um, you know, a program for them to get dialysis. You know, they have to go in multiple times a week. It's a heavy burden. But if there are trained professionals that know how to run the dialysis equipment, that there are people that have good experience and can do the work less expensively than a doctor, then why not do that? Um, why not make it easier um, and cheaper to provide that service to people that are in need? You don't necessarily have to have a doctor on site. Who's paid a ton when you can have a lower priced, experienced, very good clinical um, uh, healthcare worker that can provide that service? And then, besides, we already have a doctor shortage as it is. And so now, requiring doctors in these facilities, I mean, it's just going to make it even harder to get doctors and make more healthcare services available to the general public outside the scope of dialysis. So I'm a no, but I still wonder what the hell's going on in that industry and why we keep having um, kidney dialysis clinic propositions. Just let them do their business, you know, um, rather than us sticking our nose in it. And again, if you look at all of these propositions, that's what it all comes down to. You know, I'm a big believer and I've talked about these five principles. Uh, another podcaster I listen to, Jason Stapleton, talks about this. I'm about individual rights, limited government peace, tolerance, and free markets. It's kind of a live and let live philosophy. If no one's being harmed, if no one's rights are violated, then let people live and let live. Let people, you know, contract work for Uber. Let people go to a dialysis clinic that might be a little less expensive um, but because they don't have a doctor on site. Why should people be sticking their nose in this? Well, it's usually because if they can rig the system to their benefit, it puts more money in their pocket at the expense of someone else. That's what a lot of these propositions are, and that's why you'll see me vote no on many of them. Okay, the next one is Prop 24, and this is one where I have a conflict of interest. Um, so this is the amends, the consumer privacy laws, and um, this is all about privacy protection. And this is about, you know, when you go onto these websites and you use a website, they keep a cookie, you know, they kind of know what your interest and your behavior is. They serve up ads. And there's a lot of people that don't like that. They don't want their privacy being invaded. They want privacy when they're out on the internet. Um, people like Andrew Yang have taken this a step further and says, hey, we own this data. If you're using this data, then we deserve a fraction of the profits that you earn from that data. And that's part of what Andrew Yang wants to do for the universal basic income and the dividend people can earn from this. Well, you know, again, I, I work in the, the marketing industry and part of what I do is online marketing. And yeah, part of that is used to serve up content on websites that are relevant to those people that are visiting. So, 
If such a law is put in place, it would create a massive regulatory burden on small businesses to be able to turn certain customers on or off based on their opt-in, opt-out, um, and be deciding who gets which ads served up to them, whether they opt-in or opt-out. It's going to create a burden on those businesses. But people might be saying, "Well, who cares about that? If if they if they're um, you know collecting my information, they should bear whatever burden they need to bear because they shouldn't be you know, invading my." privacy. Well, here's the the, kind of the net net of all of this, from my opinion. These companies, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter and they're serving up ads or you're on YouTube and you're getting ads or Google serves up ads or whether you're on a company website and there are banner ads that are that are shooting up at you. um, These companies provide those websites and those resources for free. The trade is that in exchange for using those for free, then they are making money instead using an advertising model. They're making money um, by having advertisers use that platform to serve up ads that are going to get the best possible response for those advertisers. So if you go on a website and you have already been, let's just say, looking at cars, you're shopping for a car and, you know, it was noted because you were on Auto Trader or you were on a Toyota website or a Ford website or a Mercedes website. Um, and then you go to a, a website like the San Diego Union Tribune or to CNN or maybe you're surfing um, or going through Facebook. And then suddenly you start seeing ads for that Toyota or that Mercedes or that Ford car you were just looking at. In some ways, I understand it is a little big brothery. It's a little creepy. But in the end, you're being presented with offers to buy those products for things that you're already interested. And they're offering you a discount for it. And they're also letting you do this by using these resources like Facebook for free. To me, that's the trade. It's win-win. You're trading, you know, some of your browsing information in exchange for using their platforms for free. Um, But if these kinds of regulations are put in place, you're going to find a lot of these websites are going to be charging more. There's going to be subscriptions to use those websites because it becomes so onerous for them to manage through that process. And I could tell you as a person that does, you know, web work, there's all these additional requirements you have to do with websites just in the state of California that don't apply to all these other states. So it makes things much more difficult for businesses. But maybe you don't care. Maybe you don't care about businesses and the burden they bear. But in the end, it costs businesses more, which then are passed down to people because the people, the businesses are going to just pass that cost down to those that buy from them. So in the end, I, again, I'm a live and let live. You know, if you don't want to use a Facebook because you don't like them gathering your personal information, then just don't use Facebook. OK, um, but if Facebook wants to create a, pro, a, a service, a platform available for free and they do it by providing ads, then so be it. But understand there's a big difference between privacy from government and privacy from commercial, because government is in, is looking at people's phone records, their web surfing records, their email information. NSA has got a big facility in Utah doing this so-called to catch terrorists, but they're usually gathering that information so they can put people in jail so that they can restrict their liberties. They can violate their rights. That's and that's a that's why we have a Fourth Amendment that restricts the government from doing unwarranted search and seizure. So when the government is doing this kind of privacy violations, I hear you. I don't think they should at all. 
because they're using it for nefarious means to put people, a lot of times innocent people or people that rarely commit serious crimes and to harm them and damage them. In some cases, innocent people get swept up in it. But on the commercial side in the business world, the whole objective of getting information about people's demographic profile by getting information about their web surfing habits isn't to put people in jail. It's to give them discounts on products and services that they're already interested in. Okay. Now, again, I admit I'm biased. I work in this industry. Um, But to me, this is a big no because it's more regulation, more harm on small business. Then we get to Prop 25. And this was the one that was, this was weird. This was a tough one too. So, This is the final statewide proposition. Prop 25 is a referendum on the law that replaced money bail with a system based on public safety and flight risk. So this is a good topic because this is one where people are saying that the bail system as we have now, because, you know, if you get arrested, you go to jail, you can post a bail. You can go to King's uh, King Stallman's bail bonds. You can post a bail and get out of jail. Um, But um, if you don't show up for court, then they keep your money. So it, it becomes a case where people that have the financial means, they can get out of jail um, before their court case, you know, in between the arrest and the court case. But people that don't have the means, they're stuck in jail and they could be in jail for months, sometimes years. Uh, Khalil Brown is a or clear browder was a really good example of someone that was not given his due process rights to a speedy trial as guaranteed by the the Sixth Amendment, was kept in jail forever and eventually committed suicide in jail Um, and never even faced court, never even went to trial. So I understand how the the bail system can be very um, challenging for people in poverty. It's one of the many ways the system as it exists today traps people in poverty. You know, they make they commit a crime, they make a mistake and they now they've lost their job because they're in jail. They can't get out. They've lost their job. They lost their income. They're probably getting evicted from their apartment. Um, It's creating disruption in their family life. And they continue to circle the drain in poverty. So eliminating cash bail in many ways makes sense to me. But what's interesting in this one is that they're using algorithms kind of like the algorithms that Facebook and other platforms use to serve up ads. They're using algorithms to determine how much of a flight risk certain people are. And that algorithm, you don't really know about it. Should that instead be at the discretion of a judge? Does that algorithm take into account their race and saying certain races are a greater flight risk than other races? I don't know. Do you trust the algorithm? I don't know. So I'm probably going to vote yes on this, uh, mostly because I want to eliminate these situations that the government traps people in poverty. I think there's a lot to be said that the cash bail system is very unfair. Um, What it's replaced with is an open question. Um, But I will be voting yes on this. There's some other people I know and I trust that are not taking a position on this one. Um, But I will be voting yes. Okay. And that now gets us to Prop P, Measure P in Poway. Um, And this is a real hot topic. And, 
you know, by the way, if, if you've gotten this far in the podcast, thank you very much. And if you like what we're doing, you know, give us a thumbs up, you know, on the Facebook stream. Give us a like, a love. Uh, that's really helpful. It helps us in the algorithm so we can grow our audience. If you're watching on Facebook, give it a like. Subscri- excuse me. If you're watching it on YouTube, give it a like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're growing that. We're almost up to 200 subscribers. We're getting close. Um, when I get up to 1,000 subscribers, then things change and I can actually monetize the podcast, which will be interesting in the in the YouTube world. But um, I'm a long ways from that. But if you're in YouTube, subscribe. That'd be really helpful, too. Um, OK, let's talk about Measure P. And I'll read the, the piece that's in the ballot. And it says, do you approve the farm in Poway specific plan as adopted by the Poway City Council to amend the general plan and zoning code? to allow development of a master plan sustainable community with a maximum of 160 homes and at least 70.4 acres of permanent open space, including community-serving recreational and agricultural amenities on approximately 117.2 acres at the um, 17166 Stone Ridge Country Club Lane in the city of Poway. Okay. Just to cut to the chase, I'm a yes on this. And if you follow me on Facebook, you know I'm a yes on this. But let me just offer some education to to set the stage and rationale on why I'm a yes. So first of all, uh, Poway is the city in the country. Everyone talks about the city in the country. And I have often questioned if that even applies anymore today because most areas of Poway that could be built upon have already been built upon. You know, housing has taken over just about every inch of square or square inch of space with some exceptions. Um, The city has done a good job creating more open space, but that's usually trails and other areas where you really can't build housing anyways, with some exception. Um, The city has already built out the business park um, and there's not really a lot of room to build more housing in, in Poway. Um, And so meanwhile, I think it was in 1988, Poway passed Prop FF. Prop FF was a proposal by the, you know, the wisdom of the founding fathers of Poway, the way it's presented. Um, Bob Emery, one of the one of them and and other names that I don't know very well. I I met Bob Emery. He's a good man. Um, But it was all meant to preserve the character of Poway and to prevent it from being built on uh, by these, uh, you know, (laughs) I'll use some language, these evil profit seeking, you know, uh, corporate developers that want to just, you know, build and build housing and cut and run in Poway. You know, they wanted to take there were certain segments of Poway where they created zoning laws that made housing had to have certain acreage or certain lands plot sizes there were certain areas that could never be built on uh, they were deemed open space or in the case of the Stone Ridge Country Club open space recreational and on one level, that sounds very appealing. You know, we, we want to, you know, preserve our, our city and the country character. We want to keep out mass population growth and traffic and congestion and, and stress on our water and sewage systems and all that. I get it. I understand that. But that was passed in 1988. And that was, wow, 32 years ago. So does it apply now? Now, the world has changed since 1988. Um, and... People think, you know, we need to adapt to the changing world. Other people think, no, no, no. We need to hold on to 
what made Poway special, what made Poway the city in the country, which, by the way, I don't think applies anymore anyways, because there's very, 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 very little country in Poway. I mean, sure, there's some people that have horse stables in their backyard. There are some people that live on large lots, but it's not like we're, you know, down at the hitching post on a dirt road. Um, you know, we're, we're not like we don't have large, you know, farms and and cattle and all kinds of things. I mean, this isn't like an old old town country town. It's not that anymore. San Diego has grown. Poway is a suburb. It has country history. There's a country flavor, but it's no longer the city in the country. But that being said, the the Stone Ridge Country Club was, um, you know, it's been there forever. And it, they built housing around the whole Stone Ridge development. And that country club has suffered for a long time because, um, you know, golf is, you know, it became popular. Remember golf when Tiger Woods was young, golf was booming. But then the Great Recession hit. Price of water got expensive and it became difficult for the country club to be a, you know, a viable business. Um, You know, if you've ever been there to the country club, a lot of people have gone there for, you know, girls softball awards banquets and and people have gone there for fundraisers and for chamber of commerce events because you go out there that, you know, a decent facility, but it was old. It was worn out. you know, they, they had like some amenities there. There was like tennis courts. And I knew some people that belonged to the country club. But even they told me that it was worn out. They were really hustling to try to find new members. It was hard. Golf became less popular. And so the the property had gone through multiple owners that just gave up on it. It went into foreclosure. And then this guy, Michael Schlesinger, bought it. And Schlesinger um, was a guy that he's a speculator. He's a real estate speculator. And he was hoping that he could figure out a way to allow construction on that property. I mean, that's very obvious. In fact, he had done that in the city of Escondido um, and and used a lot of really, you know, uh, backhanded, you know, sort of underhanded uh, methods of getting the people angry. You know, he shut down the the Escondido Country Club and allowed it to become a a weed infested place. He uh, dropped some manure on the property that made the place smell and pissed off a lot of the homeowners there. He was just trying to agitate and get them angry and get them to finally agree to build on that property. And he eventually got his wishes. Well, here in Poway, people were saying we aren't going to bend to this Schlesinger guy. And in 2018, there was a proposal to put uh, condominiums on the on the country club and maintain nine holes of an 18 hole golf course, make the the condominiums 55 and over. Seemed like a reasonable plan to me. Um, But, you know, everyone hated Schlesinger. So it went down. And he wasn't very good at really communicating to the people about it. And and people just wanted to stick it to Schlesinger. Um, but he said, if, if this fails, I'm going to put a fence around the property. And sure enough, he did. So now it's two years later, or maybe was it three years later? I think that was 2017 when that vote went to the, to the public and it lost overwhelmingly. It was like 40 to 60, if I recall. Um, so now uh, he's come in. Um, put the, the fence around the property and it's turned into this eyesore. If you drive around the property, it, it, it looks like, you know, just an abandoned lot. Um, it's not really open space. It's not like there's trails and they connect to other trails that get you out to blue sky. It's not like that at all. It's just this, 
you know, this contained lot in between these houses that has essentially just gone to hell. The country club has been vandalized and graffitiized and, you know, it's just an eyesore. And so now the people that live on there, most of them are angry. They're like, you know, they didn't want it to be built on, but they didn't want this either. They want their old country club back, but that's not happening. That, that ship has sailed. So, so now what? Well, when it comes right down to this, it's, it's a matter of, you know, in my opinion, what, not necessarily what's best for Poway. I mean, we can argue that, but I'm of the opinion that this is the prop FF was a bad deal in the first place because that's why we have a housing crisis. That's why housing so expensive. That's why rent's so high. That's why houses cost so much because they've limited construction because they put in zoning laws like this and it's nimbyism. It's not in my backyard. And, um, to me, this is the reason we have so many problems in California. And we might say, well, yeah, we want to keep it out of Poway. But, you know, if they want to build in Escondido or if they want to build in Temecula, you know, whatever. We don't care about that. But not in Poway. Not in my backyard. So, I, I mean, I know if, if this goes up, I will probably be affected by this. I live off of Stone Ridge, um, not Stone Ridge, um, Stone Canyon Road. And people along Stone Canyon are upset. People along Martin Coit are upset because they think traffic's going to be redirected through here. And it might. and very well might. Um, I think it would be impossible to say there would be no increase in traffic. There will be some. I may be negatively affected by that. But is it my business to tell that guy what to do with his property? Okay, it's his property. Now, granted, he bought it. He understood the zoning rules. I get that. But I don't think the zoning rules make sense. Um, And, you know, and on top of it, what they're going to do to that property, if you've seen the proposal, pretty good plan. Um, I interviewed Kevin McNamara. If you want to see a really interesting interview, go back and watch that. It's one of my most highly watched and highly listened to podcasts. And it's Kevin McNamara, The Farm in Poway. And we spent three hours talking about it. And granted, I've known Kevin probably since uh, since 2005. He and I served on the city of Poway's budget review committee together. Kevin's pretty well known in town. He owns a lot of commercial property, and I know he sold some of it. So in many cases, Kevin has been the landlord of a lot of people's small businesses. I remember in that conversation, we even talked about Prop 15, and he talked about how it's just a pass-through. And how if they eliminate the commercial uh, protection of Prop 13, just going to be passed on to the the, the small business um, people at lease. Is it lessee or lessor? I always get confused. So, yeah. So Kevin McNamara um, recognized that as well. But people know Kevin. He's lived in Poway a long time. To me, I don't I don't believe, you know, you could say, oh, he's just some evil developer. He's he has the interest of the community in mind. Now he has his own personal interest in mind too. Of course, I mean he's gambling his own money. He's putting in a million dollars of his own money to pay for consultants and engineering uh, uh, plans and EIR reports. And you know he's spending a lot of his money up front. If this passes, he will have the option to buy the property from Schlesinger. Now, is it McNamara by himself? I don't know. I, I would imagine he's got, you know, a group of investors that are behind him. I'm not one of those investors. In fact, I was asked that if I like had something to gain financially by my um, support of Measure P. Um, I don't. 
I have no, I have no skin in the game at all. No financial incentive at all. Um, but I am supportive of it because a, I believe in property rights. I believe people should be able to build on their own property because it's their property. I don't think the zoning law was righteous in the first place. Number two, I support it because we have a housing crisis. We need more supply. If we are, if we have more supply of housing, we put more roofs over people's heads. And people will say, well, these are going to be expensive homes. These are million dollar houses. We need affordable housing. Well, we do. We do need a housing that is affordable, but affordable housing is housing that's subsidized by other people. Okay. That doesn't really make things, that keeps the cost of living high in California because you end up robbing from Peter to pay Paul. So if they build here, they build these million dollar homes. What is it? A hundred and so 120 or 150, I can't remember. But um, if they build these homes there and they're million dollar homes, you might be thinking, well, yeah, how is a middle class family of four going to be able to afford that? And many of them won't. But what it will do is a person that has like a $750,000 home might sell and buy there. And then that opens up the inventory of that $750,000 home. And then who buys that? Well, maybe someone that owns a half a million dollar home will buy that and move up. And that frees up a $500,000 home and on down the line. It has a cascading effect. So while there won't be necessarily affordable housing on that site, it's going to free up less expensive housing elsewhere. Some of it in Poway, some of it outside of Poway, probably most of it outside of Poway. It's my guess. People are going to want to move to Poway. Poway is a, a, a desirable place to live because we have a good school district. Never mind financially, the school district is in trouble, but academically, it's a pretty good school district. It's one of the better ones in the county, maybe top two or three. Used to be number one. Um, it's a good school district. It's a good place to raise children. Um, it's a good family-oriented community, although <laughs> the, the protests on Twin Peaks and Pomerado has been a little bit of uh, problems there, which I've talked about in the past. There are some, you know, obviously there's some downside to Poway. We can criticize our hometown. It's not um, utopia, but generally speaking, it's a good place to live. That's why I live here. That's why many of my podcast listeners and viewers live here in Poway or nearby in Rancho Bernardo, Rancho Penasquitos, in Forest Ranch, Carmel Mountain Ranch, uh, Saber Springs, Westwood. It's a good place to live. It's a good place to raise a family. It's relatively safe. Good place to be. Those houses will get filled up quickly because there's demand. And then that's going to free up housing inventory elsewhere and ultimately going to free up housing for people that, that don't have the means to buy a million dollar house. So that's good. The other reason that I think it's good is that the property looks terrible now. What's the alternative? There's no alternative plan. And right now it's an eyesore. Right now it's probably a problem for the people that live on, on that, on that uh, site. And there's going to be a lot of public amenities. There's going to be walking trails that are available to everybody. There's going to be agricultural resources that are available to everybody. There's going to be um, community use facilities that are available to everybody. Now, some of these you got to pay. Okay, you have to pay to, you know, use the pool and the tennis courts and the pickleball courts. You'll have to pay, you know, if you want to rent out the barn for a wedding, you're going to have to pay for some of these things. But it's just like if you use city resources, you got to pay the city to use them. If you want to rent out a room at um, the community center, you got to pay for it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but there, it's not like it's private, like, like where you're not allowed to use it. 
It's not like it's only for those residents. It'll be available to anybody. Um, there'll be a lot more open space that's available, more open space that's available to the general public than now, because none of it's available to the general public now. And even when it was a country club, very little was available to the general public. Typically, only those um, places in the country club in the old building itself than when they had a public event. But now, dramatically more. Some people are upset. Nick Stavros here in Poway is really against this. And I understand why. I understand there's a lot of people in Poway that don't like it, but I think more people in Poway do support it. Um, Nick Stavros was really angry because it was going to be privatized. There's going to the, the private uh, organizations are going to be able to determine what goes on there. Well, yeah, but the way this plan is built they're, they're they set a plan where they're being voted on where they can't change the plan. It's like an amendment to prop FF. So that piece of land, those parcels of land are strictly governed by what the voters are voting on. It's not like they can say, hey, we're only going to put in 150 houses, but wink, wink, nod, nod. When this is passed, we're going to put 600 condos in there and we're going to build buildings like you see in Mira Mesa towers. That's not what's going to happen. It's prohibited from the plan. So, yeah, there's private interest. People are making money on this. But you know what? It's putting roofs over people's heads. It's creating um, a better, uh, you know, public amenities for people to use. And frankly, it's Schlesinger's land. I know you don't like him, but it's his land. He should be able to profit off his land. And we have a housing crisis in California. So for me, this is an easy yes. And I know there's people that I respect, people I like and love that are against this. There's people in my neighbors that don't like it because I live off one of the side streets of Stone Canyon. There, there's a lot of people along Martin Coit and Stone Canyon that have no on P signs. But I did a drive around the, uh, the Stone Ridge community up on, was it St. Andrews and Tam O'Shanter and Cloudcroft? I saw way more yes on P than no on P signs. I don't know if that's truly indicative of what the people really believe. It's obviously the hardcore people are going to be the loudest. I know the no on P people were a little slow to the start and getting their signs out. But um, you know what? Uh, I, I may be negatively affected by this, but I still think it's the right thing to do. And they're going to upgrade the, tra- the traffic lights there, too. They're going to make traffic flow even better than it does now. Even with more people, it'll flow better because they're going to have real time um, analysis of the traffic on the streetlights. It's not going to be like a sprinkler system where like from eight to five, it's one one schedule. And, you know, from five to nine, it's a different schedule. They're going to be updating the algorithm every second of the day as they analyze traffic to keep the traffic flowing as best as possible, to keep the traffic flowing on a spola out to Rancho Bernardo Road and onto the 15 freeway to discourage traffic from coming through Martin Coyton Stone Canyon. That's going to be a good thing. Some people will come up Martin Coyne, Stone Canyon. There will be some more traffic. People that live on those streets are going to probably be bummed by that. I live off of that street. So I'm going to be negatively affected, but it doesn't. It's like I, it's kind of like I keep telling you, I'm a live and let live guy is I don't think it's my place to tell those people how to live their life. It's not my place to tell them that they can't build on their property. Now, granted, I know it's been zoned, but I don't agree with the zoning. I think the zoning was flawed. I think the zoning was wrong. I think the zoning harms property rights and ultimately individual rights. And that's what I'm all about, individual rights. We own our life. I'm all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think people should have the ability to build on their property. 
and other nosy neighbors or Mrs. Kravitz from Bewitched shouldn't be able to dictate what other people do on their property as long as they're not harming others. It's not like they're building a nuclear power plant over there. They're just building some homes and some agricultural space and some parkland and a little amphitheater to enjoy. And like, I think there's going to be like a coffee shop or a beer garden or something over there. There'll be a little bit of commercial activity up here in North Poway for a change. There's very little of it. In fact, we, there was a little bit of it in the country club, but that was lost. There's a little bit of it at Madeiras, but that's kind of, you know, off on its own. It'd be nice to have a little something here, you know? I mean, I mean it's walking distance from my house. Be a good, uh, good little bit of exercise and get out and try something new. So I'm all for it. Um, there's nothing, there's no utopia. There's nothing that's perfect, but I'm all for it. And it's funny is that our friends in South Poway, um, and again, I lived in South Poway for 11 years and I've lived in North Poway a little bit longer than that. My friends in South Poway, some of them are angry at North Poway people and they get angry because North Poway won't build more, won't increase density more in North Poway, won't build commercial property or commercial uh, um, pieces of business in North Poway. But now they are. And now people in South Poway are still mad. Um, So I understand why they're angry. I get it. Um, South Poway has been treated poorly in some ways. I understand it. I live there. But to me, this is not something that's worth. I mean, the people in North Poway want it. The Green Valley Civic Association wants to build in North Poway. The city council, you know, all of them, and I think all of them but one live up here. Well, three of the five for sure live up in North Poway. They all want it. Um, A lot of the neighbors want it. So let's just do it. Um, It's going to be better than what exists now. It's going to be a net improvement. It's going to be, frankly, better for the property value of those homes that are that live adjacent to it. That's ultimately going to be a win for them, too. So and it's going to be good for the housing crisis. So I see. Yes, on P. I rambled long enough on that. But if you follow me on Facebook, you know, that's generally how I feel about it. So, um Wow. He went through the the voter pamphlet, all the propositions, a little bit long winded on it. But hopefully I'm just sharing what I think. Now, what you think, you may think differently. Um, And that's okay. That's why we vote. Um, But if you like what I say, if you don't like what I say, let me know. Reach out to me on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube comments. Let me know. You know, share with me here in the live stream and tell me what you think. Um, I know some of my friends, some of my loyal uh, fans on the podcast, they probably like some of my opinions and dislike some of my opinions. That's okay. Um, That's all good. That's diversity, right? That's what makes America great, that we can have differences of opinion, um, but we don't resort to violence. We we just uh, learn to understand each other, have empathy for one another. And in some games we win and some we lose. And in the end, we just try to get along. And that's okay. It's all good. Um, The conversation about it is interesting. Um, But I'm not motivated to stick it to Schlesinger. I know McNamara. I wouldn't consider McNamara a friend, but I've known him since 05. Um, I trust him. Um, And but I I mean, I'm I'm not voting for this because I like McNamara. That's not the reason I'm voting for this on the principle that I support property rights, that I think we have a housing crisis. And what exists there now is awful and there's no better alternative plan. So you add it all up. Yes. Okay. so now um, I've got a closing quote, and this is um, actually 
very much aligned with a lot of my comments on the propositions. Um, this is uh, very much aligned with my comments on Measure P and Poway. And it's a quote from Ayn Rand. And she says, individual rights are not subject to a public vote. A majority has no right to vote away the rights of a minority. Oh, man, I agree with that. And that's what I started talking about in the very beginning of this podcast. Prop 8 in California, a majority of voters said that gay people couldn't marry. A majority of voters oppressed a minority. To me, that's wrong. That's morally wrong. Individual rights need to be protected. People should have the right to their own life their own liberty, and their own pursuit of happiness. They should be able to live their life on their own terms as long as they don't violate the rights of other people. Um, And so that's a a driving force in the way that I vote. I want to get other people's nose out of other people's business. I want people to mind their own business, um, live and let live, and, and respect other people's choices. Um, So, yeah, individual rights are not subject to a public vote. A majority has no right to vote away the rights of a minority. That's Ayn Rand, author, philosopher, um, a very interesting and divisive person in American culture. Um, Some people love him, love her. Some people hate her. Um, The more I learn about her, the more I like her. Um, And I'd be interested in having that conversation with people as well. That'd be a fun one, too. If you ever want to come on the podcast as a guest, we can talk about Ayn Rand. I'm learning more and more about her. And the more I learn, the more I like um, okay, so it's uh, wow, well, an hour and a half. So we're going to cut this off. Uh, Padre game starts in 30 minutes. All right, go Padres. Going to beat the Cardinals and move on to the second round. We have our trust in Craig Stammen. Uh, so let's hope for good things. And thank you for joining me on episode number 171 of the John Riley Project. We'll be back at you Monday at 2 o'clock. We're doing the live stream every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 p.m. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to the recorded versions, too. And we'll see you later, friends. Happy Friday. Bye-bye.